Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, I've been thinking a lot about how we approach discussing and taking action around abortion access. Earlier this year, I made an attempt at covering this topic with two terrific guests, Jamie Manson from Catholics for Choice and Shira Zemmel from the National Council of Jewish Women, both staunch reproductive rights advocates. Although I was clear that my reason for having two people on the same side of the issue was to avoid a discussion turning instead into a heated debate, I still received pushback from listeners requesting that a different perspective on abortion also be presented. Now that Roe has been overturned, and many states are quickly moving to ban abortion, it felt appropriate to revisit the subject. In particular, I was curious to hear from a Gen Z woman who was actually celebrating the decision. I reached out to about a dozen organizations who were involved in the anti-abortion movement, most of whom had women in leadership, although they tended to be middle-aged. The group Students for Life connected me with Anna Lulis, their digital engagement strategist. So in the first part of the show, I'll share my conversation with Anna. Because the topic of abortion often centers a white Christian perspective, whether for or against, I also wanted to talk with reproductive justice advocates from other communities as well. In the second part of the show, I also speak with Elisa Cosme of Heart and Reverend Kenyetta Chinue of Sister Song who discuss how this issue is particularly hitting black and Muslim communities. One thing that was interesting symmetry about these two conversations with folks who have opposing views was how my guests separately landed on the same key point of inherent worth being at the core of the issue. Keep an ear out for that as you listen. I hope whatever you believe about abortion, you'll take the time to listen to the whole episode and remain open to understanding where someone with another viewpoint is coming from. With that, let's get into some interfaith-ish. You know, I think context is really important. So tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what your religious upbringing was like. I was born and raised in Virginia. I grew up, I would say, culturally Catholic, um, but I identified as a, as an agnostic. Um, hmm. Up until I was 19 years old, but I was always pro-life just because as, a, as an agnostic, I uh, was driven by science. I would say science was my God. And so objectively, I understood when human life began. There are so many studies out with like Princeton University, University of Chicago, you name it, where there's a consensus among the scientific community when human life began. So I was always pro-life, um, even as an agnostic. And then when I was 19 years old, I had a conversion and I reverted back to the Catholic faith. And then when I was at Liberty University, I got involved with the pro-life group. And then since then, I've been working with Students for Life of America. What was the thing that that um, caused you to reevaluate your, your own faith and belief as a Christian? Because I was agnostic, I accepted this idea that you are only worth whatever you produce. So... Mm. I was big on uh, achieving a lot in my life um, and whatever I ended up pursuing, whether that be within the academic realm or sports, you name it, I wanted to be the best because I 
attach that to my worth and value. So I was a competitive figure skater and actually made a uh, figure skating team that tends to represent Team USA. And I thought that was going to be it. And I was going to feel like I have a bunch of meaning and value and I've made it, but I was miserable. So I started reassessing why that was the case. Like, what is the meaning of life? Which is super cliche, I feel like, but that is truly what happened because in a worldly sense, I had it all. I had what society told me I needed in order to feel this big sense of worth or value. And so it was so weird because I I hate Christianity. I never wanted to pick up the uh, the Bible day in my life. One day I walked into a room and there was a Bible there and I just felt very called to just open it. And right when I opened uh, scripture, it fell on Mark where it said, if thou shall gain the world yet lose his soul, what really shall he gain? And instantaneously, I had this radical conversion where I understood that there is a God human life has value because of God. And I was so lost in terms of my ideology and worldview that I held prior. Personally, I I definitely am somebody that does not agree that the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade is is something to celebrate. Um, But my role with this show is to engage with people who have different perspectives on really a range of subjects. And, you know, to that end, I'm I'm genuinely wanting to understand your perspective on this issue, particularly as a young religious woman in America, um, because I think that so much of this conversation, or ra- rather there isn't really a conversation about it. It is, it is oftentimes a shouting match. Um, and, and I think that part of the space that we're trying to create with this show is to build bridges of understanding between people who may have theological differences or political differences. Um, and so that, you know, that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to invite you to, to be part of this, because I, I genuinely am, am curious, um, being somebody that does not directly interact with a lot of people who have the same stance on this issue as you do. Yeah, I love that you were able to have me on because I am the same way and wanting to find common ground with people, but also discuss an issue that isn't discussed enough in our society, in my opinion. This is a key thing that's going to be affecting first and foremost young people in the years to come. So what is what is that message look like that that led us to this to this moment around such you know an undeniably effective campaign over really years of activism? Yeah, I think the narrative that has been pushed to women to accept, which is you're not equal to men unless you have abortion. I think that's extremely oppressive to women. And we've been told that unless we're able to end the life of a unique and distinct human being, um, we won't be capable of succeeding. We won't be capable of accessing the same opportunities as men. And instead of a society that uplifts women um, and allows them to have children and to thrive in the workplace, whatever they want to do. Um, they, they almost have degraded women down to this one issue. And I think us breaking that and debunking that narrative online has been extremely effective. You know, as I hear you talking about a framing of that, of that narrative, one of the critiques that, that I hear a lot of, of anti-abortion activists is that, um, you know, there's this this definite feeling of of claiming to be pro-life 
and yet are not wholeheartedly supporting what you could label as maybe whole life health issues, um, like universal health care, paid family leave, standardizing a living wage, free pre-K, other social services that are really around assisting in the overall health and well-being of whether a mother, an individual mother, or really the family, right? The development of that family. So I wonder how that factors in. How do you receive those critiques and and what is that, how does that play into your worldview on this topic? If somebody says a lot of times people mention uh, mention those issues to me and say the pro-life movement doesn't do anything about caring for a child after they're born, to which I would say you don't know the pro-life movement then because we do so much for helping women, not only when she's caught in an unexpected pregnancy, but afterwards we walk them through that. We also support improving um, maternity leave, a universal healthcare. Okay. What does that consist of? Let's break it down because obviously we want everyone to have access to real healthcare. That does not include access to abortion because abortion access is not true healthcare. Healthcare is supposed to maintain or restore somebody's health, not end the life of a unique and distinct human being. So I think those discussions need to have, and we do focus on that and we do want to improve various areas for to improve the quality of life for everybody. However, we just don't want to support an act that ends the life of a human being. And a lot of times people use abortion as a solution to a problem. So for example, they'll mention the foster care and say, well, we need abortion because the foster care system is corrupt. To which I would say, you know what? We should focus on improving the foster care system, but we should not end the life of somebody else and say that's the solution to this problem. We need to actually find a real and valid solution and not say somebody could be a potential sufferer from this. Let's end the life of that potential sufferer. That wouldn't make sense with any other issue. And I think that's why we are the pro-life movement, because we are extremely involved with improving and wanting to improve all of these other issues that could affect human life in total. But we just need to start with the issue of abortion. And if we're not able to protect human life in the most vulnerable state, then how are we supposed to focus on protecting the dignity of human life for any other issue? So yes, those other issues are important. And we're saying protecting the dignity of human life is also important in the womb. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can't think of another issue uh, where uh, continuity or a continuum of of support is is more necessary, right? Because you're talking literally about life and development of a life, right? So if like we have in this particular case, whether a pregnancy is wanted or not, you know, if it's carried to term, that mother, that family is is going to need some sort of help, right? The individuals that you were talking about um, who found themselves uh, with an unwanted pregnancy or even a wanted pregnancy in in college as a young person is going to need help, right? It's going to need the help of their immediate family. It's going to need the help of their community, right? And if there's ever a case where a group really can't be a one-issue you know, group, it would seem like the this call for the ending of abortion would be that because it need it requires at a fundamental level a, a connection point with groups that are also improving as you said the foster care system um 
helping with with ensure that people have fair and equitable health care, affordable health care, and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm curious for Students for Life, what are some of those partner groups that you work with that are continuing to work that are you're sort of handing the baton to as along this this idea of a movement that is really about the whole life of the person? So I would say that Yes, it's important to be connected with other organizations that want to improve these various areas. Um, however, I don't necessarily think it's always a requirement for pro-life organizations to have an immediate connection to them. We ourselves start like initiatives like the standingwithyou.org, where we connect women to pregnancy help organizations that walk through the pregnancy with a woman, but also afterwards find help with financial support, whether that be like buying diapers, paying rent, honestly, anything you can think of. There's also another um, organization called Be Their Village that does the same thing. So after the fact, after a child is born, we financially support those women. We are connected through various outlets. Um, and I, I would say it's in, extremely important to focus on human life from the womb to the tomb. Um, but we cannot neglect the most valuable life, which is the most vulnerable in the womb. And if we're not able to protect that, um, it's a little hypocritical for people to say, well, what about the foster care system when you don't even want to protect the most vulnerable, vulnerable people in our society? Okay. I can, I can see how that would, I mean, I, I, both sides seem to have sort of a, well, where's the starting point, you know? sort of an issue with the, which is why it, it becomes such a fraught conversation, right? As if, if your starting place is, is that life undeniably begins a conception, then that is, as you're saying, the most important thing to start from. Whereas other people say, okay, well, that's, that can be debatable depending on our theology, depending on, on, um, yeah, just pers personal belief system we're consider we we're more concerned with what happens after those initial nine months, which could be the next, you know, 90 years of the person. In terms of the the abortion part of it, um, whether you go into a Planned Parenthood or you're taking, you know, sort of in a traditional sense, you know, many hundreds of years back, some sort of herbal remedy to end a, a terminate a pregnancy, um, abortion is happening right? It's, gonna, it's going to happen in, in society in many, many different types of ways, um, whether it's legal or not. And it seems like the, the prevailing evidence is that the number of abortions will continue, um, whether it's legal in the United States or not. It's just that making them illegal um, will put the health of the women in greater jeopardy. So I wonder where does that idea factor into, into your work? I think particularly from a moral perspective, because it sounds like to me that what you continually are coming back to is this idea of, yes, abolishing abortion legally, but if you're talking about it, not, not just in terms of rights, but in terms of a, a, uh, an act, right? An act that somebody's taking on a moral level to end uh, a life, then, then it is, it's ultimately about not having any abortions or dramatically reducing the number of abortions. Is that accurate? Yeah. And I would go back to 
or ask you, would somebody use the same reasoning for sex trafficking, for slavery, for theft? We can outlaw those things, but they're still going to happen. We have mm-hmm. a huge sex trafficking issue in America, but is it legal? We have a hu- people still rob stores, but is that legal? So I think that reasoning doesn't necessarily make sense because yes, we want to abolish abortion completely. Do we recognize that some abortions will happen even if it's illegal? Yes. And that's with every other issue. Does that mean with all these other issues, we should just make everything legal? Absolutely not. Your society would be in chaos. So there needs to be legal parameters on what is socially acceptable and what's not, what is moral and what's not. And if something is immoral, there needs to be laws surrounding that issue. So what is the, I guess, the moral education then component to it, right? There's, there's, as a, as a Christian, how do you uh, see a path forward to have people make a, another choice? around that, particularly given where we are in society at present, where um, I think that they're, they're, it's actually the opposite, right? The, for a great percentage of the population, it's not necessarily that people are pro-abortion in, 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 in high, very high numbers. I would say that people are pro, you know, having sovereignty over one's own body, and having the right to make a choice about when having a pregnancy is is right for them, for all the issues that you talked about, for all the reasons that you talked about. Um, but how does one go about making that societal shift from from your Christian perspective about reducing actually the number of of abortions that are happening? Well, I would say people, majority of people are pro-abortion, whether they admit that or not, whether they don't necessarily recognize that's their stance, that is their stance because the only option they want access to is abortion. So I would disagree with you slightly on that. Um, I think education is key when it comes to this issue. Like I mentioned prior, the more we educate individuals on this topic, the more people tend to be for limits. So if we're able to do that, but also tell people why we should care about human life in general. I think that was a big factor that was missing for me when I was as an agnostic. I started questioning morally, uh, why should I care about human life? What is the meaning of life? And I think a lot of people in my generation don't know. And I think we're told something that's artificial, like it's your accomplishments. It's not... Um, And so people start focusing on careers and devaluing human life in general, that I think if we're able to tell people that your worth does not stem from your accomplishments. It stems from something that's greater than you can even imagine and that you have inherent worth and value. And that's why people care about these issues, but where does that stem from? And if we don't have that um, conclusion, logical conclusion or rationing to, then we're not, I think a lot of people, especially my generation will just be lost, especially when it surrounds a lot of these social issues, whether it's the abortion issue or not. And abolishing abortion from your perspective and and I guess for Students for Life is in all cases categorically making it an illegal act. Is that right? That's that's correct. Yes. So one of the statistics that I read recently was according to the organization RAIN that one in six women in America um, has experienced some level of sexual violence. 
and more than half of those um, are under the age of 35. So that's, you know, obviously the majority of the people that are that are expected to be the victim of sexual violence is somebody, you know, in your age group, right? One of these younger women that are coming up, many of whom that I see are, are really at the forefront of this um, uh, anti-abortion movement. And I'm, I, you know, I, I think that, in, so inevitably somebody that you know is going to be the victim of this type of violence and, and will, I, understandably at some point someone will not want to carry a resulting pregnancy to term so i'm i'm curious when you encounter that type of situation how how will you counsel that person given that this is such a traumatic um experience and an understandable one that perhaps they would want to end any um pregnancy that results from that yeah so i Every time I encounter anybody who has experienced any form of sexual abuse, it's awful. Nobody should experience that in any way, shape, or form. Anyone in the pro-life movement would say that. The reason why we're against sexual abuse is the same reason why we're against abortion. They're both violent acts, and one violent act does not justify another. And I think it is an extreme disservice to women to say that because you experience this violent act, that innocent, another innocent human being should be liable for that. The person who, um, who disgustingly infringed upon your rights should be held accountable, not an innocent human being. So we should always meet women where they're at when it comes to any form of trauma they've experienced, especially with sexual abuse but not say the solution is abortion, but say we want to seek justice for you, that's actually effective by going after the individual who did this to you and counseling them in a way where they're able to help process their trauma. Um, Like I said, that doesn't resort to another act of violence. So these are really difficult subjects to to talk about. And, And obviously the Christian community is very diverse. Um, and and has a lot of different perspectives on this, depending on who you talk to, um, identifying as a Christian. Um, you can feel many different ways on, on these issues. How do you engage with people in your community, in your Christian community, who are pro-choice, um, see this as an attack, this, this overturning of Roe v. Wade as an attack on their fundam- fundamental rights as people? Yeah, I would say because I'm Catholic, the majority of Catholics, because it's in our church teaching, are opposed to abortion. Even if you tend to be a little more progressive on certain social issues, the majority of Catholics I talk to, it's like a no issue for them. We all recognize that human life starts at fertilization. It should be protected at that point. Um, When I talk to people within the Protestant community, there tends to be a little more diversity of thought when it comes to this issue, just because there is no absolute authority or, uh, or set teaching that they have to adhere to. It's kind of up for individual interpretation. So what I go back to is scripture, just because, um, Protestants tend to be sola scriptura. So I'll talk about how, even though abortion isn't explicitly mentioned in the Bible, there are contextual points we can pull from, for example, like with Isaac, when he was praying to God about uh, conceiving a child with Rebecca, um, but she was barren, the Lord answered his prayer and it says in scripture, and then she conceived, showing that human life starts at conception. 
and that human life has value. So we are made in the image in God of we're made in the image of God that's mentioned in Genesis, but also it talks about justice and seeking justice and ensuring that people aren't being led away to slaughter or death and that we have an obligation as Christians to preserve the sanctity of human life, but also understand when human life begins begin so that we're able to protect human life from that point on. So having those discussions with other Christians and pulling it back to scripture, I think has been extremely effective, but with the Catholic community, there's kind of a consensus. So do you feel like there is a, a possibility for constructive dialogue on, on these issues within a, a, a diverse Christian community? Do you think that there are, do you, do you see hope for there to be a, a more fruitful conversation as opposed to, as we were talking about at the beginning, it being more of a shouting match between two very opposed sides? Yeah, absolutely. I think just sitting down with people and hearing folks out when it comes to the issue of abortion, whether if somebody is identifies as being a pro-abortion Christian Um, I would love to have a conversation with them. And every time I find out something like that out, I always ask them to explain why they support access to abortion. Um, And we're able to have more of a respectful dialogue than being outside the Supreme Court with blowhorns and whatnot, because you're not changing anyone's minds if you just go up to somebody who has a difference of opinion to just yell at them about the issue and And within the Christian community, some people would say like, shove the Bible down our throat or whatever it may be. Mm. You're not effective um, by doing so because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus met people where they were at. He sat down with them and talked to them about the issue, uh, any moral issue. And, And people felt like they were hurt. And they, every person scripturally, it says like when they encountered Jesus were, you could tell were moved deeply by what he had to say and how he even interacted with them. And if we're not able to model that, we're not being effective and we're not living up to what Christ calls us to live up to, which is loving your neighbor. Um, I think people, if they immediately feel judged for believing in a certain thing, maybe without being fully educated on it, they're less likely to talk to you or even have a discussion. So I think it's an obligation for the Christian community to come together peacefully to have these respectful conversations. Well, like you were saying, you know, the Christian community certainly on this issue is the loudest, Um, you know, in preparation for this conversation, um, I researched numerous um, uh, anti-abortion organizations that have been very active in this movement at the forefront of this movement. Um, And, and there's certainly a diversity in terms of the makeup of the activists. Um, But from a religious perspective, they are, you know, by and large, conservative Christians, whether Catholic, Protestant, et cetera. And I, I was curious for you, why do you think uh, it is that there isn't a, a really vocal presence of Muslims or Jews or other religious groups in the movement, um, especially since there's been uh, such a strong history of religious coalitions that are built around issues like economic justice or racial justice or immigration reform or the climate crisis? Um, I don't think people are fully educated about the topic of abortion. And I think if we're able to do that, more groups would be involved. 
Um, I there are progressive eighth secular groups that do work with us, though. I don't know if you've ever heard of POW, but a lot of people who work for them are come from various religious backgrounds, but also are atheists or agnostics. Uh, we're at Students for Life of America. We tend to be, the majority of us tend to be Christian. So we do work with groups like that. And I wouldn't necessarily say people who hold beliefs that, uh, that's not Christianity aren't in the movement. They just might not be uh, highlighted as much through various media outlets. But I do think, like I mentioned, education is key. And if we're able to inform society more on this issue, more groups would get connected with us. Well, as as I said at the beginning of the conversation, you know, this is this is an issue where I I fundamentally have a disagreement with you about about the starting point to the conversation. Um, I think that the the idea of framing it as a as a great evil, you know, is is something that is is just a place that I I can't get to you know in terms of my own belief system but I think it's it's obviously incredibly difficult to even start to engage on these subjects and yet I'm I'm very appreciative of your willingness to to be part of a conversation that um you know helps to unpack some of these ideas because oftentimes there isn't a, a strong dialogue to understand where somebody who holds a very different perspective is coming from. Um, so I'm, I, I appreciate that about you and, and your willingness to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Dear listener, that was my conversation with Anna Lulis, digital engagement strategist with Students for Life. I've reflected a lot on this conversation since we recorded it. And I still do believe that as our country moves in the direction of further limiting abortion access and criminalizing those who choose to have an abortion, we're going to make a lot of people's lives worse, despite the goals of folks like Anna who are trying to protect life. My next guests discuss these subjects in more detail from their perspective as reproductive justice advocates. Here's my conversation with Aliza Cosmi and Reverend Kenyatta Chinwe. So I, I want to just start a little bit as I like to do with each um, conversation. And, and really, I think in this particular conversation, uh, it's, it's as if not more important to, to understand a little bit about where everybody's coming from. So I, I want to just start there and ask, Aliza, could you sh share a little bit about the context of where you grew up and what your religious and spiritual upbringing was like, how that influenced your, your worldview? Absolutely. So I am a Muslim American. I'm a second generation Pakistani. And I was born in San Francisco, California, and grew up in the East Bay area. So I always feel really privileged to have grown up where I did because it's just such a rich, diverse um, community. And, you know, I actually didn't grow up with a ton of other Muslim kids around me like at school um and i had you know kind of a interesting experience because my mom who raised us as a single parent was navigating you know the landscape of how to uh, bring us up educate us and you know give us some kind of an islamic education in a new country honestly i think that it was challenging for us given that my parents were divorced and there was a lot of community stigma against 
my mom and our family because of that. And so that cultural kind of stigma, which is Mm. very much in my mind, separate from the actual teachings of the religion, definitely impacted me because I didn't necessarily feel a strong sense of community or, um, you know, communal safety, even within Muslims. And then when I was about 11, 9-11 happened. So right, Mm. you know, in my kind of tween years, that also was kind of like a double whammy of learning just how other Muslims were seen and increasingly so after 9-11 by non-Muslims who I thought, you know, we were very close to just all of the folks in our community because how I was raised is that you shouldn't um, treat anyone, you know, like any less than anyone else. Everybody is equal. Everybody is human and you should always be humane. And that's part of our religion. It's part of our culture and uh, part of the values that my mom espoused. So I definitely think that, you know, being of the generation that I am growing up amidst 9-11 and also being in California, um, where there are a lot of Muslims, but, you know, it's it's also like my personal experience wasn't that we were going to the mosque every weekend or anything like that, um, mm-hmm. consistently at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you for, for sharing so much of your story. That's, uh, it, it, it's interesting to to hear the unique entry point that that folks have in that blend of what are the things, as you said, that are religious versus cultural and where where do those things um, intertwine and, and when are they when are they distinct? Kenyatta, I'm cur- curious for you as well, if you could share a little bit about your story. Um, where, what was your religious upbringing? Where was that happening? Sure. Um, so. I am. Uh, I was born and raised in Miami, Florida, to Caribbean um, and Caribbean heritage parents. My father is a, a Caribbean immigrant, and um, uh, my mother's parents were uh, Caribbean immigrants. Mm. And um, I grew up uh, Pentecostal in the Pentecostal denomination of Christianity, which can be um, very conservative. Um, and mm-hmm. so, um, I I grew up in. Um, kind of the duality of the conservatism that is kind of inherent in uh, Pentecostal uh, uh, doctrine, being juxtaposed um, with my father, who was a Pentecostal preacher, who was also very liberal-minded. And so oh, okay. um, I tell people all the time, even though I grew up Pentecostal, I have always been pro-choice, but that's because I grew up with a father who was pro-choice. My mm-hmm. father always um, uh, espoused that, you know, he's like, I don't, I don't uh, believe in boy- abortion is what he used to say. He's like, you know, and I don't, I, I wouldn't necessarily want one of my daughters to have one. He says, but I also know that we get to make that decision as a family and everybody else should be able to do that as well. And mm-hmm. so it was, um, uh, it was never a, a conflict for me to, to be both Christian and pro-choice because I saw it modeled for me in my household. Um, and so, um, you know, c- growing up, the daughter, granddaughter, niece um, of a long line of Pentecostal preachers definitely had other, you know, ramifications um, in my life, um, you know, because those spaces can be very patriarchal. And so mm-hmm. um, I definitely learned things that I had to unlearn about myself as both 
a woman and someone who identifies as queer, um, you know, uh, later in my life, I had to, you know, do some unpacking and unlearning. But I think the things that I bring to this work with me from that, from my upbringing, is the ethic of care and service um, that is like inherent in in, in Pentecostal um, beliefs. You know, we believe in taking care of each other, and so I bring that same uh, ethic to the work that I do. What does your tradition say of, around? this issue of abortion, about the the importance of reproductive health and rights. Even among Pentecostals, there is no unified, oh, this is what uh, our faith believes. Um, uh, for instance, I have siblings who are ministers in the Pentecostal faith who do not believe in abortion, but believe people should have the right to make the decisions for their lives mm -hmm. um, outside of government intrusion. And then I have other people that I know who believe that um, uh, abortion is a necessary procedure, um, especially in, in uh, cases of the life of the mother or in cases of, you know, rape and incest. So it, it really kind of spreads the gamut um, of truthfully what your particular um, faction, I hate to use that word, but your particular faith leader may espouse about the, the topic. Um, so yeah, that, that, like I say, it's so hard to kind of speak. I know for a long time, there has been a narrative that has been um, put forth by um, those who would be on the other side of, of, of rights for uh, reproductive rights that says that it's um, not biblical, but the truth of the matter is, is there is not really mention of um, abortion in in the ways that they talk about in the Bible, um, and so therefore there is not really rooted. It's rooted more in their interpretation of the Ten Commandments and that the thou, thou not, shall not kill, but it's so specific um, in that there are so many other ways that we are killing in society that a lot of them. Uh, don't seem to care about, but this one issue they do. Um, and so I think the thing uh, for uh, Christians of whatever denomination to, to really understand is that um, the scriptures that are sometimes used to defend robbing people of their reproductive rights are not necessarily scriptures that have anything to do with the topic at all. They're, they're, they've been taken out of context. So, Well, Elisa, Despite the pluralism of our country, this conversation tends to be almost completely dominated by a, a Christian perspective, right? And so I'm very curious to hear from, from you in, in your Muslim tradition, what does that have to say, have to say about reproductive health care um, and, and one's uh, rights uh, over, over their choices of their own body? Sure. So I think the first thing is that there is no categorical prohibition nor permissibility on abortion in Islam. So there's nothing in the Quran or in the example of the prophet, peace be upon him, that says abortion is completely prohibited or abortion is always allowed. And I think that that is, you know, often taken for granted, even within Muslim communities, as well as when non-Muslims try to make sense of our position on this issue, that 
there is no sort of clear, you know, um, consensus because it's ultimately up to each Muslim to interpret to the best mm. of their ability what our faith tradition says. And not only that, but I think um, the other reason that it's um, something that isn't completely prohibited or permitted is because it's intended to be determined on a case-by-case basis. You know, what is the unique circumstance of the person who is pregnant and what is what makes sense and what is most safe and most healthy for that person? I think, you know, another way to look at it is that the only thing that all Muslims agree on, all Muslims, is that there's one God. That's the only thing that we all are on the same page about everything else, even if you consider, you know, the different pillars of like prayer and fasting and giving to charity, there's a million different versions of all of those things. It's not like you're going to talk to me and then pick another random Muslim to talk to and assume that we pray exactly the same and we give alms exactly the same way because it's all open to interpretation. And even, you know, the fact that the Quran Um, is written in Arabic and was revealed in Arabic. Arabic is a living language. And so there's so many different interpretations of and translations even of that sacred text, you know. Um, And I think that what some Muslims struggle with is, you know, people want the clarity of what does our religion say? Is this permitted or not? And what we have to remember is that it's not that black and white and only God knows everything. We are only human. We're doing our best to, you know, interpret divine will and do our, you know, right, do our duty to follow divine will to the best of our knowledge. Um, at the same time, you know, we, we have to be careful about not adopting really what is a white supremacist queer phobic and extremely narrow version of Christianity, you know, that is being imposed by not even religious folks like people of faith in the Christian tradition in this country, but people who are in government and who have different um, power and influence who are using religion as a tool for their political agenda. And so that's one of the things that we really try to focus on is distinguishing um, the politics from, from our actual faith tradition. Hmm. Thank you. And I'm curious how then you're putting those, uh, perspectives, um, those beliefs into practice through your work at heart. If you could explain a little bit about heart's mission and, uh, and, and how you're bringing that Muslim perspective to the work that Mm -hmm. you do in the community. So our mission is that we want to uproot gendered violence and advance reproductive justice so that all people, including Muslims, can live in safety and thrive in their communities. And we do focus specifically on, you know, Muslims because partly because the Muslim communities in the U.S. are so diverse. So, you know, you have at least one in three Muslims in America are black Um, You have Sunnis, you have Shias, you have people who were born here versus, you know, people who are refugees and immigrants. And that's also where, you know, with our work, we do a lot of health education and political education 
to try to meet Muslims where they're at, knowing that in any given workshop we have or any organization or group that, you know, accesses our different resources, whether it's virtual, you know, um, PDFs of different resources that they can find on our website and our social media, or if they request a workshop with us, we always have to understand, okay, who are we, who are we talking to in this situation? You know, is it younger folks? Is it older folks? Where do they live in the country? Which is going to be especially important now, given the impact of, you know, Roe being overturned specifically on Southern and Midwestern states. Um, and part of the health education is understanding that not a lot of folks, including Muslims, have comprehensive and really accessible sex education. So absolutely part of the issue that we are seeing, you know, across our communities is that people need to be able to talk openly and without fear and shame about healthy sex and healthy relationships, because especially for young folks, you know, if we don't have access to that information, you know, readily available, and if people can't make sense of it in terms of their different identities, including as Muslims, um, that could put them at greater risk of, you know, things like an unwanted pregnancy, for example. But it's also, I want to be clear that it's not just about the health education and making sure that people are aware about, you know, what are contraceptives? How do you use them? That's not the only issue, right? It's also about people not having access to sex, uh, um, reproductive and sexual health care, including contraception, um, and all of the different, you know, services and needs that people have, depending on where you live. And that was a problem even before Roe was overturned. It's now going to be an even greater issue. And so in addition to that health education and political education that we do, we also have um, the systems advocacy work that we engage in, where we do want to educate Muslims, you know, build their awareness and um understanding of what our role is as Muslims in this political movement and moment, and then actually take that and galvanize them to be mobilized, especially at their state and local levels where, you know, fights like the um, the abortion criminalization fight and even like voting rights and other issues um, are really tending to happen is it depends on which state you live in. Kenyatta, similarly with Sister Song, the work of Sister Song, tell us about how how you all are 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 working in the community. I I'm I would love to, but before we move on, I actually just wanted to comment on something oh, that Aliza sure. said. Um, I, I think it that she's absolutely right about the fact that this is this has broader implications than just reproductive health care, um, and I think it's important to name that these that these under-resourced uh, communities are deliberately under-resourced. And that's what makes it a, a mm. racial and economic justice issue is because we already live in a society that has um, deemed some people to be a part of a permanent underclass. And then they pass bills that will affect their lives because, because they have been deemed in, and regulated to these spaces, they have don't have access to the things that they need. And so therefore, they will be the first ones criminalized when these egregious laws go into effect. And so I think we, we need to name that, that it's not just that they're under-resourced, but they purposely are under-resourced. And um, 
I just wanted to say that. So Sister Song is, um, as you know, one of the oldest uh, reproductive justice organizations in the country. Um, and um, our work is rooted uh, in three main areas, uh, education, culture shift, and some policy work. My specific work at Sister Song as the Faith Advocacy Coordinator is to um, build a base of visible and vocal people of faith who stand on the side of reproductive rights, health and justice. And so that is the base of, of all, all of the work that I do um, in Sister Song. A lot of uh, my um, on the ground organizing happens in Georgia where Sister Song is headquartered, um, but also um, a lot of the, the culture shift work that I do uh, is uh, both within the state and, and um, nationally. But for us, um, one of the main things is to educate people about the frame of reproductive justice, because it's it's one that is not as um, clearly understood as it should be. And I've seen in recent days since, you know, leading up to the Roe uh, decision and since the Roe decision, people using this term of reproductive justice and not actually understanding um, what it is and where the frame comes from. Um, in 1994, 12 Black women saw that the, the larger choice movement at the time was not addressing all of the things that impact the reproductive lives of Black, Indigenous, women of color, and poor women. And so they came up with this frame of reproductive justice. Um, we say it's the place where reproductive rights and social justice meet. Um, and they came up with the frame, understanding that more things affect the reproductive lives of uh, the, the the groups that I just named, besides just having the right to an abortion. Um, the right is one thing, but as Elisa pointed out in her, uh, uh, her, her point just most recently, there has always been issues of access. Um, even when the right was secured, um, the brown, black and brown communities, uh, rural communities, poor communities um, still had access barriers. Some people having to travel miles, some people not having the financial resources because um, things like the Hyde Amendment prohibit uh, using public funds for abortion. So if you're someone who uses Medicare, Medicaid, you, you couldn't pay for that procedure with your uh, public insurance. And so there's always been issues of access, but even outside of just the issues of access, um, there are things that are environmental and social that impact the reproductive lives of, of all of us, but especially those of us who are black and brown and low income in, in this country. And so they came up with a framework um, and called it reproductive justice. It sits on four main tenets that are rooted in a human rights framework. Those tenets are we believe that everyone has the human right to have a child, to not have a child, to parent the children that they have in safe, sustainable communities, free from interpersonal and state sanctioned violence. And the last is bodily autonomy. In the, They believed in those four tenets, uh, a movement could be built to address the full reproductive lives of people and not just um, the right to abortion. And so all of my work is rooted in that framework of reproductive justice, um, which means that as a reproductive justice advocate, I work um, with faith communities around being um, vocal about abortion 
um, access and abortion rights, but I also um, talk to communities about what it looks like to have criminal justice reform. I also talk to them about environmental justice, um, economic justice, because all of those things affect the reproductive lives of people. Um, a lot of the a lot of the decisions that are made around abortion are rooted in these actual social issues. Right. Um, if if I can't afford to have a child, then when I found out find out that I'm pregnant. I'm going to look at all of my options and see what's the best option for me. And if I am already struggling just to to uh, uh, keep myself and the children I may already have alive, then I'm, I'm going to make the decision that's best for my life. And so we have to act like we have to not act like that the, the larger issues of racial and economic and social justice don't also impact our reproductive lives. And that is what. Uh, the black women who came up with this frame understood because our lives are so intersectional. Anyway, we live um, at, we live in a positionality as black women with many intersecting systems of power um, seeking to oppress us. And so therefore we cannot only fight for, for one area at a time. We don't have that luxury. Um, and so reproductive justice um, a- allows for us to fight for our, our full lives um, in that way. Thank you. One of the things that um, I, I see as being a, a, a real issue around this particular subject is, is really the starting place of, of a definition of terms. Coming into this conversation, I'm really curious about you all, uh, what your perspectives are when in, encountering or engaging with people for whom the definition even of something as, as foundational as what life is and when it begins is not a shared definition. The truth of the matter is I really try very hard to um, meet people where they are and stay open um, uh, to try to, to converse with people. But I also am fully aware that um, when, when discussing sensitive issues that one of which abortion has become, that there are some people who will not um, change their position. And it's not, and it isn't actually rooted in anything factual. It is rooted in a deep, uh, deep-seated ideology. And and all, all that I can do in those cases is, like I said, listen, and then, and then give my perspective. Right. And then, and then, you know, move on. But when, when there is room for movement, when there is, you know, someone holding a position, but they, but they're wrestling uh, for whatever reason, I like to get in there with them and and wrestle with them and 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 find out, you know, what the sticking points are. Because what I have found in in the work that I have that I am doing is that um, a lot of faithful people, uh, especially, get get caught up on what they think that God once and the reality is none of us knows the mind of god if we are faithful people we believe that none of us knows the mind of god and all that we can do is do our best to effectively navigate the life that he's that he she or they however you presume them has given us and and the best way to do that is to exercise the agency of choice that we all got at birth as our birthright. 
yeah, that was so great. And it really resonated with me as well, because, you know, one of the Islamic tenets that we're uplifting in the political education, working with Muslims to understand reproductive justice and talk about, you know, abortion within that is that we each are individually accountable to God. So that free will that we have and that choice that we have to make of do we believe do we not believe do we choose to do good deeds do we choose to kind of stray away from those you know all of that we're our belief is that each muslim and each person is going to individually be held to account in the hereafter um as to your personal choices and your personal actions no one else you know is going to be standing there with you it's just you and god and ultimately, you know, going back to this question of, um, is it a life? Is it not a life? Again, there's so many different views on that, depending on not just which school of Islamic thought you're talking about, but who, which Muslim you're talking to, because everybody has different interpretations of, you know, maybe um, the question of at which point during gestation does the soul enter the fetus? Is it 40 days? Is it 80 days? Is it 120 days? Like, you might see people, um, you might see some Muslims with big platforms kind of talking about um, a consensus that, well, the consensus is that we all agree that 120 days, you know, that's the cutoff and abortion is, you know, extremely restricted after that, unless it's a matter of life and death or um, some other like unique circumstance. And even there, you again, have that case by case um, distinction of, you can't make a wholesale kind of um, guidance on what should happen because it depends on the individual situation. And not only that, but there is there is ultimately no major um, consensus that I assume as a Muslim, um, just because somebody has X number of like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers and they're a very renowned, you know, um, leader or scholar. I don't know, you know, how how representative their opinion is of the literal billions of Muslims in the world. So I think that that's that's the challenge that folks have is that they want that guidance and they want that clarity. But ultimately, our actual belief is that each individual person um, has to kind of determine for themselves what they believe in how exactly they practice. The only non-negotiable is that there's only one God. And even that, you know, we are not allowed um, to impose our beliefs on anyone else, whether it's other Muslims or other non-Muslims. So if I have, you know, a really strong conviction that like after, you know, my belief in one God, my next biggest conviction is that abortion is prohibited or it's prohibited in these cases, I have no right, you know, I have no divine authority to be telling other Muslims or non-Muslims for that matter, how they should, you know, um, su subscribe to my belief. That, that is the main reason why this particular area should not be something that's legislated hmm. by anybody's spiritual belief. Um, and that is that is the, um, the 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 root of. But I think what both of us are saying, even coming from our spiritual perspectives, this is a choice that should be made between the pregnant person, whoever they may be partnered with, if they are partnered with someone, and their 
medical professional. This is a medical decision that should be made in the same way that all of our other medical uh, procedures are done. Nobody is asking the government, can I have a tonsillectomy? You know, tonsillectomy. No one's asking, you know, the government, you know, sh- should I have my adenoids m- removed? And no one should have to ask the government if they should be able to terminate a pregnancy if that the choice that they're making for their lives. Um, that That's the thing. This is, you know, what I always say whenever I am, uh, you know, speaking uh, in groups of faithful people is no one is asking you to believe in abortion. If you don't believe in abortion, then that's your belief. But but you don't get the right to impose that on other people. And this is not something that the government should be legislating. Well, this ties in then to to uh, uh, where I just wanted to wrap up this section about about what action do you see then as being most urgent to do now in in the short term and then looking out further because we're a, we're on the precipice of being faced with the with the very hard and real reality of the criminalization of women of families of providers and um, and that's going to substantially affect to the detriment of many, many people, whether or not, you know, not the potential of life, you know, debatable, you know, as that might be, but the actual lives of, of people hundred percent. So, so I'm curious for you all, what, where do you see as being uh, the work to go from, from here, given, given where we are right now as a, as a country? So for heart, you know, we do know that even though there is no set consensus on um, abortion, over half of Muslims in the U.S. do support access to safe and legal abortion. And that's been documented in different uh, recent studies, including the 2022 American Muslim poll. And so firstly, we start by assuming that um, there are a substantial amount of Muslims out there who either have had an abortion, know someone who's had an abortion, or have a concern that this is a type of healthcare that they may need to access, you know, in the future. And so, um, based off of that assumption, we definitely want people to be aware of what the resources are, particularly folks who live in states, you know, that are especially hostile and where the criminalization factor is just evolving every day. And So we want to do our part in partnership with um, other organizations to just help people make sense of what is and is not legal where I live. And based on that, what are my options or my loved one's options if they're in a situation where they need to access care and they are now at risk of being criminalized for that. And then um, alongside that, the other piece is encouraging people to donate. So Um, You know, I'm in California. I know that a lot of folks here don't necessarily feel as close to the issue of criminalization because our state, you know, has protected abortion. And not only that, but we're trying to create a sanctuary for the million plus people that are expected to come into California um, because they can't access this care in their own state. So, you know, thinking about Muslims in states like California and New York and other places where it's not necessarily us who are being criminalized, we need to be aware of different Black-led and, um, you know, 
uh, people with uteruses led organizations like abortion funds and clinics and other reproductive justice organizations that need capacity now because part of the economic injustice of this is that a lot of the advocates who are doing this work are black women and brown women who are the last to be funded right like literally we are the last to be funded and that means that we really need not just donors but funders to really step up and help people who are essentially running these crucial life-saving you know services and advocacy um on a volunteer you know basis because they don't have the money to um actually finance staff and um so where muslims are looking to get involved we really encourage them to access the national network of abortion funds and other resources where they can help kind of build that capacity as donors but also if they are connected to people with substantial financial and political capital doing that advocacy to help everyone including themselves understand what is actually at stake here and how we can resource um the work to help people access the care that they need and so mm -hmm. um it's really important for people if they have like a moral concern that well i personally think that abortion criminalization is good i really encourage those muslims um to really step back and look at what this criminalization what the impact of this criminalization is historically and um it's not it's not a mystery we know that we are disproportionately criminalized and we need to be um especially mindful of even how that is going to play out um at an even greater scale given just the domino effect that we're seeing of again this is not just about criminalizing abortion but it's opening the door to overturning other supreme court precedents you know related to other aspects of people's lives and um, frankly, I think that people don't really understand or they take for granted that their state and local governments have their best interest at heart. They really need to um, be aware, like Kenyatta was saying, about the intentional political agendas to harm Black people and people with low incomes. Like this is not a, an accident. It's very much a part of, um, you know, a reproductive injustice agenda, you could say, where, um, you know, people's voting rights are being attacked. Like people are, people need to look at it from a comprehensive lens. And that's where that reproductive justice um, framework that we're trying to promote is really important. Thank you. Just like Aliza was talking about, the last um, uh, research that Auburn Seminary did showed that there are actually more uh, Christians who believe um, that abortion is um, a medical procedure that's necessary then don't. But unfortunately, there, a very small faction of Christendom has um, taken the narrative and run with it. And I, I, my job is to help people understand that that small faction is rooted in a white Christian nationalism that will not stop at abortion access. Abortion access was the low hanging fruit and, and and this will lead to uh, more erosion of our democracy in this mm. country. Mm. Um, and so I need people to understand that, um, that, that um, you know, it, it was never about abortion to begin with. Um, and if people 
really learned the history of how the pro-life movement really became the juggernaut that it is today. They'd understand that this this had little to do little to do with actual uh, trying to save innocent lives and much more about gaining political power for a small faction of the country. And so therefore, I tell people all the time that the gerrymandering that we see going on around voter suppression, you know, all of the, the, the egregious policies that we're seeing, it's because of that movement gaining power in the early 80s um, and coalescing that power around the incoming uh, uh, evangelical black president of Ronald Reagan and gaining political power over the last 40 years. Yeah. And in that same 40 years, they they waged a, a culture campaign uh, positioning themselves on the moral high ground and everybody else is not. And so that's how we get to this moment right now. Yeah. And so it's time for us who are faithful to, to especially Christians, to resist that and say we will not allow them to use our religion in this way as a weapon. Dear listener, I hope you've been enjoying my conversation so far with Eliza Cosme and Reverend Kenyatta Chinwe. Now, as we do each episode, I turn the mic over to my guests to ask some questions of their own, anything they'd like to follow up on or understand better about each other's perspective. Here again are Eliza and Kenyatta. I would like to um, ask a question of Eliza because I think it's important to hear um, a Muslim woman identified person's voice on this on this topic. So, um, you know, since the decision came down about a week and a half ago at this point, I've seen so many uninformed comparisons to Sharia law on social media. And I know it must be hard to see your faith misrepresented in that way. I understand that. Um, is there anything you have been doing, number one, to combat that narrative? And number two, to promote non-Muslim audiences to better see that making that comparison is rooted in gendered Islamophobia? Thank you for that question. I really appreciate it. And, you know, unfortunately, we, like you had said earlier, we really have to do a lot of narrative change work um, and make it consistent work and leverage all of the different tools at our disposal to continue to assert that essentially, you know, our religion is not the bad guy here. And also when other people promote um, these kinds of narratives that this is a Taliban move or this is just like Sharia, I really encourage them to, first of all, stop, but also actually look at, you know, what our religion um, is all about, which is, again, a diversity of views and a separation of church and state or, you know, religion and state. And more than that, I think that um, on top of the Islamophobia, you know, that we're dealing with when we hear things like that, it's a diversion from the actual accountability and the actual history like you were just speaking to about who is actually behind these legislative moves in this country, right? And historically, it has always been cishet white men who are, you know, as you really um, eloquently kind of gave that quick overview, it's not even their personal religious beliefs necessarily. It's just how they're using and politicizing their religion 
to achieve their political agenda, which is white supremacy, which is, you know, to keep people who are in poverty in poverty. And it's it's about their fear that if we really confront the racial and economic injustice underlying this and in interconnected issues, um, that's going to cause true accountability where power will be redistributed and there will truly be equity and justice in this country, you know, and I know we just had um, the 4th of July. People of color have been saying, right, including black and indigenous folks have been saying like freedom for who, justice for who, because historically in this country, it's the same people who have been creating that systemic harm and scaling and perpetuating that harm. And those people are not Muslims. <laughs> like they're literally not Muslims. Um, they have, Muslims are the furthest thing from their mind other than, again, as a tool to divert attention and say like Muslims are kind of like the extreme negative and Islam is the extreme negative when we think about how um, faith, you know, is like a part of this conversation of how we um, uphold our democracy. And again, Muslims, like you said, we, we understand what it's like to um, have someone else's beliefs or, you know, distorted beliefs imposed on us, we are definitely not trying to do that to anybody else. And we completely reject these um, really harmful narratives that want to somehow turn this into um, something that brown men essentially and beards are doing when it's, that's just not the case. It's just not. And we really welcome other, you know, like I appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast because frankly, a lot of mainstream media and different media are not talking to different folks. Like we, we've acknowledged it before. I know Jack was saying like a lot of the conversation is dominated by Christians or Christian-ish or white folks. And we have to really bring all perspectives to the table to show and underscore that um, this is really an agenda, a political agenda that's really against the majority of people in this country's beliefs, regardless of what religion we are. Thank you for that answer. And I absolutely agree. Like, I think, I think if there's any message of our time, both in this time and for time to come, is that this, uh, this attack on our democracy, not just our, our, um, bodily autonomy is rooted in a white Christian nationalism that elevates mm -hmm. white cisgendered men. They're the only ones who benefit. All of the rest mm -hmm. of us are on different gradients of uh, effect, but all of the rest of us are being affected by it. Um, I guess my last question for you is, in a society steeped um, in misinformed, gendered Islamophobia, what are you doing? What are the ways that you're attending to your to the care of your mental and emotional health? Well, I first of all, I'm just so grateful for you and our different partners and our different staff and volunteers and board members, you know, all of our networks of support, because I think the most important thing, it's kind of like when you go to a protest, you never go alone. You never put yourself kind of like in a bubble of, I'm going to try to handle this all on my own because you can't, it's just emotionally not sustainable. And, you know, I'm at a point where, um, I'm newer to the movement definitely than you. I, 
Um, I'm about 10 years into my career. And I think even before um, Roe was overturned, I was really, during the pandemic, I think I was really thinking a lot about burnout and how burnout is unfortunately very normalized regardless of what kind of work you do um, or what issue you focus on, but particularly as impacted people, you know, trying to uproot violence and promote reproductive justice. And at the same time, we are literally facing the harms, you know, that we are trying to um, combat. And so it's paramount that we take care of ourselves. And, you know, that looks different for different people. For me personally, I um, have been really trying to hold myself accountable and even like talk to my friends and family to help me be accountable to rest because it's so hard to really push yourself to really disconnect and really rest. Not, you know, once in a blue moon, but consistently like make it a practice to rest, rejuvenate, you know, do things that bring you joy. I mean, I think that there is unfortunately, like even with everything that's going on, unfortunately, there is still so much joy and resilience in ourselves, our people, our cultural and faith traditions. Um, and, you know, it's really important to make space for those individual or communal rituals and practices to um, just give yourself space to reset and you know, not, not always be compelled to go to every direct action or read all of the news articles. Like there will be time to do all of that. Um, but there will not be time if we burn ourselves out and are just not, you know, don't even have the physical or emotional energy and our mental health and our emotional health impacts our physical health. So if we are not well, then we're actually also doing a disservice to the people that we're trying to serve because we're spreading ourselves too thin to do anything meaningful. Um, So that's kind of how I've been thinking about it is, you know, just not putting everything on my shoulders individually and um, staying connected and communicating with my colleagues and my loved ones and making space to rest and um, do things that bring me joy. What about you? I have the same question for you. Um. A lot of what you said, I, I am definitely um, leaning into the best parts of my faith um, mm-hmm. to support me in this moment. Um, uh, I definitely, uh, my my prayer life is definitely <laughs> accelerated in the midst of, of all of this. But also, uh, I am being intentional about resting as well. And I also have my best friend in the whole world. We've been best friends for 29 years um, since since I was a sophomore in college. Um, she uh, is my accountability partner and she, mm-hmm. you know, checks me every day and she's like, did you eat today? Did you rest today? You know, like, she, yeah. she is on it to make sure that I, I don't um, burn the candle at birth, both ends and then just mm-hmm. be, you know, uh, mm-hmm. And I don't succeed every day. I won't act like I do, but but um, having her check in definitely makes me more accountable to to making sure I do that. And also, I have recently um, started to try to shift my diet a bit um, so that I'll have more energy. Um, and so that is that is uh, being helpful as well. Like, and then my last thing is that I have a therapist. Um, that I see every other week. And um, I am one of those people who I 
promote therapy. I said, you know, I say it all the time. I said, I love Jesus and I have a therapist. Like there is nothing wrong with those yeah. two things co coexisting. So um, my mm -hmm. therapist is definitely, um, especially in these times right now, be a big help. Mm -hmm. That's so great. And I also just remembered, I forgot to tell you this, but um, we had been talking a couple of months ago and you mentioned the book Set Boundaries, Find Peace by Nedra Tawab, who's also yeah. a therapist. And I haven't finished it, but I've been working my way through it. So uh, and honestly, it's such a good book because it's difficult for me to read because as I'm reading it, I'm like, I have so much more I need to improve on setting <laughs> boundaries. So it's like, I feel, I feel very, uh, yeah, I, I feel like it's a good accountability mechanism, you know? I agree. That book is very hard, like you said, and it does make you, make you see where you're, you're kind of shallow in, in your boundary setting and your boundary holding. Yeah, yeah. I think like, you know, to your point, like I, I think that friends are just so great and sometimes I try to, I, I really have to try to push myself to listen to my friends and loved ones because I'm like, don't judge me. I'm not that much of a, you know, like hard worker that I'm just disregarding my health. And then I read that book and I'm like, okay, I have some more work to do. Oh, yeah. So, and she gives am, very concrete tools. In the exactly. Book. And, yeah. you know, even before reading that book, I was very clear that like I have a Caribbean work, work ethic. You know, my father's Caribbean. <laughs> my mother's yeah. Caribbean. I... I'm going to give 115% yep. always. And so I realized um, last year, I realized, I was like, you know what? This is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. I've been doing it. I've been working since I was 17. Mm -hmm. I am now at that, at that time I was 48 and 49. I was like, girl, you got to do something. <laughs> you might not make it to retirement age if you don't figure something out, you know? <laughs> I recently was listening to a, a different podcast where someone was sharing this affirmation. It's a set of affirmations that they say to themselves that is, um, I am enough, I have enough, and I do enough. And I, fa I found that's that amazing. that's really powerful too. Yeah. To put that together that I am enough, I have enough, I do enough. Um, because I think, again, we live in a capitalistic society that tells us that you don't, you're not enough. You don't right. have the only enough. values are labor. Right, right, we live in right. a capitalistic society that tells us we are only as good as the work that we can produce. And so mm -hmm. if we're not producing work, then we feel like mm -hmm. we're not actually of value. And I'd like that. I'm going to add that because I yeah. always feel like I'm not doing enough. <laughs> Right. There's always that little voice in the back of your head. And especially, you know, like you said, this is an ongoing um, challenge and it it's probably not going to get any easier anytime soon. But I think that it's really imperative that white women and just different folks who have more resources and bigger platforms really take it seriously and just partner and um, amplify black and brown folks work around reproductive justice right now with the midterms also coming up and how crucial this election, um, like all elections will be, but also amidst the ongoing attacks on voting rights as well. I mean, exactly. if people, if people have resources, they should think about the people who don't have resources or have like disproportionately less resources and do what they can to support our efforts instead of kind of operating in their own vacuum. And let's, let's, you know, face it, the RJ framework is so in, intersectional and so expansive that it 
actually, if we promoted it as the strategy, it would actually empower uh, our legislators in a, w- in a way that the single issue focus has not, because they'll be able to say, yes, you're talking about conception, but we're talking about life. We're talking about the actual lives of people who are already here. And, and, we, and we would be able to take back that moral high ground that has been ceded for so long. Couldn't agree well, more. Thank you. Well, I, I I do feel like there were a number of uh, cues in there to <laughs> as a as a cisgendered hetero white man with a media <laughs> platform <laughs> to say that I'm I'm happy to have you um, uh, here to present your um, the the ideas and the and and the resources and the encouragement really because I I what I was seeing was a a lot of um, actual joy and and to hear laughter, you know, when we're dealing also with 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 these heavy subjects, I think is is an important piece of of it as well, right? And so to be able to sit here and and listen and 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 witness the joy of two collaborators, you know, talking together and hearing about the resources that you're sharing between each other, I think is is very it's educational for me, and I'm happy that we. At the uh, the mighty media juggernaut that is community radio in Tacoma Park can help um, to, <laughs> to to share the message of the work that you all are doing. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith Ish. I want to again thank my guest, Anna Lulis of Students for Life. You can learn more about her organization at studentsforlife.org. And I also want to thank Aliza Kazmi from Heart and Reverend Kenyatta Chinwe from Sister Song. You can find out more about their work at hearttogrow.org and sistersong.net, as well as sacreddignity.org. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovemeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical master, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listener, for spending your time with us. If you're listening to this over at TacomaRadio.org, you can also find our archives of past shows or check us out on your podcast aggregator of choice. We're on social media at InterfaithIsh, so keep writing us about the InterfaithIsh you wish to dish at InterfaithIsh at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith Ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week. Streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.